listening to Rattle and Pedal, diversion thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Your hosts are Jason Malicki and Jeff McKay. Okay, so Jeff, last time we talked, we left our listeners on a bit of a cliffhanger in that we had taken them through three of the seven capabilities of exceptional thought leadership marketers. And this was deriving from the research that we did in partnership with Bloom Group late last year. And we left them at at capability number four. So we've sort of left them in the lurch. So my goal today, or I think what we were hoping to talk about today is these last four capabilities and sort of tie a nice bow on top of this for our listeners, if at all possible. So how's that sound to you? It's a bow tying ceremony. <laughs> <laughs> e. Gordon Gee would be proud. No one knows who that is, but anyway. All right. So capability number four is this capability of argument shapers. And really this capability is one that is really all about the, the skills of the idea developers in your firm. And I'll do my best to share some words that Bob Bidet, our business partner on this research study, always likes to say, which is that the thought leadership marketers on your team, the folks that are tasked with taking your big compelling ideas and delivering them into the market should not be stenographers. They should not be ghostwriters. They should be argument shapers. The central idea to this is that their job is to develop a compelling argument and to help the subject matter expert recognize when the argument they're making is insufficient or it's weak. And so their job isn't necessarily to be the subject matter expert. It's to shape the thinking of the subject matter expert. And what the research says about this is that exceptional thought leadership marketers just value the inherent attributes and skills that are required to do that more than their peers. And they're obviously just better at getting those skills. And and the specific skills that I'm speaking of in this particular regard is interpersonal skills and subject matter knowledge. So it's sort of identifying idea developers that have some working knowledge of the topic at hand and then have the ability to work interpersonally with the subject matter expert in a way that they're sort of delicately pushing back when needed. And they're not, you know, they're not getting steamrolled all the time by the expert. And the leaders value those skills more and they have them more, which is probably the more critical piece of all that, I suppose. I think that's an important point. I've seen that in the firms that I've worked in as well. And it, it the skills are very complementary. I couldn't agree more. I've seen it play out in real life in developing thought leadership that really stands out in the market. I think that Subject matter experts often fall in love with their own ideas and solutions. And we've talked about that multiple times. And having this voice that pushes back on that self-love and keeps saying, why is this relevant to our client? How is this any different than what's already being said? How does this really help is such an important skill. I think most marketers just take what so-called subject matter experts already or say is, you know, gospel. And I think given how important, and you've done some really good writing on this around how, who says you're a thought leader and who says you're not in terms of SEO Mm -hmm. and being able to structure an argument in a white space that exists in the market, not just in the minds of of people, but also in that white space that is the Google controlled search results. Yeah. And this is a really important skill to make thought leadership stand out 
so it can actually be found. I think it's really important. Yeah, you know, the interesting thing looking back at the research data as we're talking is that the, so when, again, we compare leaders and followers in this study. So the best with the worst. And the interesting thing to me is that the best sort of place equal emphasis, equal importance on those interpersonal and subject knowledge skills that are critical to developing and shaping great ideas. They place equal weight on that as they do on just raw writing skills. In firms that aren't successful, there's a mismatch there. They're more focused on getting you know, writing skills and less focused on the other. I just think that's really interesting, this idea that the person that you're, you're, you're tasking with shaping and developing and publishing the ideas of your experts, I'm not saying you're putting less emphasis on their writing ability, but you're not, you're, you don't see that as the most critical skill. That to me was kind of what jumped out that I thought was really important for listeners to understand was that, you know, you don't necessarily need this person to be C.S. Lewis. <laughs> you need them to be good writers that know how to interface with subject matter experts. And, 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 and that skill is a little bit off the mark if you're just focused entirely on technical writing skills. Technical is the wrong word, but. No, technical is the right word. I've seen this in those organizations that don't do it well. They have a writer or editor who is pedantic in terms of, you know, here's how it has to be. And it becomes so rigid and you're you're fighting over comma placements and verb or adjectives instead of the idea as a whole, instead of the story as a whole. Yes. There's a big difference between those two. You know, it's the gets to what I say in terms of design. Design is its goal should be to help people understand, not to just be pretty. And not that those two are mutually exclusive, as we've talked about quite a bit. So you, fi- you finally learned. You finally listened and learned and processed new information, new insight that things can be beautiful and compelling together. Yes. I'm so proud of you today. This is a momentous moment for you. We need to mark this date down. And we'll have that edited out. (laughs) Wayne, that's never edited out ever. Okay, so let's go to capability five. So in the interest of time. So capability five, we call it the audience builders for a reason. And of course, it's really just all about scaling audience around your thinking. And there's a lot in this. So I'll do my best to sort of cut across it at a high level first. There's the central issue on this is just that obviously, as you might expect, exceptional thought leadership marketers know how to build audience and they leverage sort of multiple different formats of media to make that happen. And I'll just highlight some of the things that are in the research that I think are most critical. The first is I would say that they put a bigger emphasis on earned media. And by that, we mean they're just more likely to make significant efforts to get their thinking published in prestigious places. So either they're publishing a book and they're anchoring that in their thought leadership programs, they're publishing in you know highly sought after prestigious publications like HBR or industry journals. They're doing things that enable them to reach audiences that they can't reach on their own while also conferring credibility on their thinking as well. The second thing in this category of audience builders is that the exceptional thought leadership marketers are just further along on their maturity curve and moving from lean-in content to lean-back content. And what we mean by that is really just sort of active to passive consumption. The, The recognition that executives' daily lives are as busy as everybody else's And they are definitely looking for more ways to learn and more ways to interact with thought leadership content, meaning they're shifting away from long form white papers 
towards shorter form video content, audio content, multimedia content, interactive content. Not saying that the long form content is dead or should go away because obviously they're publishing books simultaneously. I mean, we've talked on this podcast about how senior leaders still read and I still feel strongly that senior leaders read books heavily, but the recognition that that media landscape is changing and they're out in front of it and they're investing sort of at the other end of the continuum in a very strategic way. So I'll stop there and let you comment because I don't want to just keep going. And there's really a lot of data in that capability number five, the audience builders that we could talk about all day, but we don't have all day. So I think this part of the research is really a gem. I think the research from top to bottom is excellent stuff. But if you only take one thing away, this model and the way you're talking about lean in, lean back content is exceptional. I really, really like that metaphor. It's, it's quite visual, but it's meaningful. And I've seen this, you know, you know, throughout my career as well, but really recently, you know, from some of the big firms, you know, McKinsey introduced their, is it called 550? Is it 550? 550 and Accenture has something like that as well that are great examples. But this really isn't just, you know, some professional services benchmarking reports say, hey, you have to do more video. That's not what this is saying. What this is saying is you need a balanced portfolio, a smorgasbord of distribution channels and content forms to meet the needs of your constituents. And I developed a model like this many years ago based on, you know, speed to market and volume and personalization. And you're getting at that here, but there's a certain form for a certain level of issue or information distribution. And I had, I experienced this, oh God, I experienced this regularly in my life. I go to YouTube University all the time to repair things around my house. (laughs) (laughs) And there, when you do a search on how to fix something, I always go to the three minute videos. I don't go to the 60 seconds because I know there can't be enough in there or substance. And I don't want to spend 30 minutes learning how to replace some gasket or take something apart or it, it can't be that difficult. So what this tells me is, is make it meaningful, make it concise, make it clear based on the level and complexity of what you're dealing with and then drive to all the other relevant areas based on the interests of the people. Yeah. And, and the framework that we use in there that you reference is the, the thought leadership content continuum is what we've called it. And the idea of the continuum is pretty simple. It's just this idea that it's a progression and there's a relationship between all these assets. If there's one word in the content marketing universe that I would love to destroy, it's repurposing. I think repurposing is the stupidest idea I've ever heard because it's not about repurposing the content. It's about understanding the progression. And, and, the, and that's what McKinsey did so well with the five. 50 was that they made the progression very direct. They said, give me five minutes of your time and I'll give you a synopsis of this thinking. And at the end of five minutes, you can decide if you want to give me 50 more. And mm-hmm. that's the idea of the progression is the idea that if you're really going to, if you're going to publish something thoughtful on a really big, heady topic, you're going to need an hour or more of the time of the executive for them to really process it and understand it and figure out what to do with it. But they're not going to give you an hour right off the bat without 
you know, tempering the risk associated with going into that hour. And so when you give them that three minute video, what you're doing is you're reducing the risk associated with giving you the hour. And it's all, you know, just all part of this continuum. And so, yes, see, the relationship to me is what's critical because it's not just let's repurpose this as many ways as we possibly can to connect with people based on how they learn. That's not how, how it should work at all. It's all about the progression. So like I said, if you only take one thing away, this is both strategic and tactical <laughs> importance here, I think. Yeah, no, I thank you. I appreciate that. So good job, Bob Boudet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. All right. So capability six is digital enlighteners. And uh, that was really funny, by the way. Occasionally, you're a funny guy. (laughs) Capability six is digital enlighteners. And and this is really all about just the refrain that you hear all over the place of being digital first. This is probably where the data is most stark in terms of contrast, in terms of the firms that are really out in front of this, that are just getting exceptional outcomes from their thought leadership marketers are just way more digital than all their peers. And certainly, particularly the bottom category of this research study. And I'll highlight just a couple of things in here that I find really interesting. Probably the first one that I find interesting is just that leaders, the digital enlighteners, see their website as their most valuable marketing asset, period. There's no question in that regard. And other firms are sort of on the fence about that. I think they're still struggling to figure out how the web fits into their greater client attraction efforts. The best of the best are just like, you know, this is our central marketing asset. And there's so many reasons it's our central marketing asset and it's our most critical marketing asset. I would say the other piece of this that's, so there's a mindset piece, right? That they view the web as is critical. And then there's what I would call a behaviors piece, which is that they look at the web with a different lens. They view the web as both the pliable medium it is. So they're much more likely to be investing in sort of what I like to call continuous improvement. So this idea of it's... You that the website is not a project. The website is this living, breathing entity that we constantly need to invest in and constantly look at how we make it smarter and better and more effective at guiding our clients from learning to vetting into discussion. And they put a lot of thought. Say that that again, because that part about how the leaders look at website or as I prefer to call it, digital platform, because I think that's critical for maybe not the marketers, but the partners and SMEs to hear. They may say, oh, yeah, I get that. But I don't think they necessarily do. Yeah. Do you understand what I'm saying? I mean, it's the point that a website. I understand what you're saying. The website is not a project that gets updated every four years for a refresh. Correct. It's a living, breathing thing that is constantly in flux and adapting and, and changing every day. And the bigger the firm you have, the more complex that is. And your processes of approvals and changes needs to have rigor to it, but it has to enable it. You can't wait a month of process to change something. Well, yeah. I mean, it's ridiculous. And it's, it's the web is the most fluid medium ever invented, right? And I'll just give mm-hmm. a, a story real quick, and maybe this will help partners understand what I th- we're both trying to say here. I can't tell you how many times I've been part of web projects with firms where we're building a website on behalf of a firm and the site gets stuck in neutral for extended periods of time. And usually what they're hemming and hawing over during that extended period of time is language. 
<laughs> it's messaging about the firm, messaging about solutions, messaging about practice lines, and they'll sit on it for months and on end. And at the end of those months, they will have made minor tweaks to 5% of the language, and now they're ready to publish. And that's a huge mistake. The better strategy would have been publish a draft one, edit it, refine it, improve it, and then change it. You can do that anytime you want. <laughs> that is mm-hmm. the web. Right. And, mm-hmm. and, and so mm-hmm. I don't want to bore our listeners too much, but it's just, there's, there's a lot of partners that bring the, an old print mindset to a fluid interactive medium and it hurts them all over the place. That's one place it hurts them. It hurts them in that they're not iterating and improving the web property or they're looking at this one moment in time. I'm going to give this website or whatever you want to call it. I'm going to give it my attention for the next six months to really, really focus with the marketer. I'm building it the way I want it. And then I'm going to walk away and never touch it again and expect it just to deliver outcomes to me. That's like calling up a client and having a conversation with them and then ignoring them for 12 months and then being shocked when they don't hire you again. Right. Mm-hmm. It's the exact same thing. That's just not how the digital enlighteners operate, right? They, they sort of do the opposite of all this. They're very thoughtful about planning the buyer's journey, the customer experience that guides the client from learning to vetting and into discussion through the web platform. And then they're very, they take control of that and they invest in improving it all the time. They're, they're looking at it regularly and saying, how do I make this work better? That's the wrap of the research in a nutshell, I guess. And there's four or five tiers of data describing all, all of those, those activities. You're listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on growing your professional services firm. Your hosts are Jason Malicki, principal of Rattleback, the marketing agency for professional services firms, and Jeff McKay, former CMO and founder of strategy consultancy, Prudent Pedal. If you find this podcast helpful, please help us by telling a friend and rating us on iTunes. Thank you. Now back to Jason and Jeff. When you look at content marketing for all of its silliness, the real value of it is what you just described in describing digital enlighteners and audience builders and the type of content continuum is the content has a purpose. And the purpose is to answer the questions that prospects have along the buyer's journey. Correct. And if it's not doing that at the time and place in the form they want, they're going to bail because there are a lot of other firms out there that are doing that. When people are buying our services, they don't want to waste time educating themselves and sorting through your difficult to understand materials. They just want an answer and they're going to make quick decisions because they have day jobs. (laughs) (laughs) They have day jobs. So let's get on with it. Yeah, it's interesting because there's a really interesting trap that firms find themselves in as it relates to web publishing. And the interesting trap is this. If you care about search engine visibility and you want to get found through Google, you need a steady diet of useful topical content, right? Yet your buyer wants 
clarity in the journey. Like you said, our buying model, our four-stage buying model that we've talked about on this podcast is rooted in the questions the client's asking themselves along their, their buying journey. And they really want to find those answers as quickly as they can. And they would like to have foundational content at each stage that's going to answer all those questions to the best of their ability. So in a way, the marketer is tasked with a client that wants simplicity, yet to get found, there's an expectation of volume. And so they're constantly battling volume and simplicity in the web experience. And to me, that intersection is where the audience builders and digital enlighteners live. They recognize that in order to deliver on those two promises, they have to be constantly looking at how they improve the experience. They have to be constantly mindful of how they're shaping the buying journey and how they're controlling it and guiding it and that and that it's a unified experience. And so it's it's a really interesting place to operate and just the best of the best are just doing those things better. They have the right mindset and they have the right behaviors to back it up, which is really the the critical findings in this section of the research, I would say. Most firms professional services firms get stuck in stage one or stage two of the buyer's journey because they're too focused on demand generation and, and brand building and or lead gen. Wait, can I ask, can I ask a clarifying question real quick? When you say stuck, yep. do you mean their clients are stuck in that phase of the journey with when consuming their marketing? Or do you mean that the marketing team is stuck? What do you mean by stuck? The marketing team is investing too much time, money, and effort in those first couple of stages, building awareness of a problem and maybe some general understanding of possible solutions or the firm's thinking around a given issue. But once you're in that kind of limited set of potential firms that could solve a problem, the types of questions that are asked are totally different. They move from the issue into things about the firm and the process of solving that that issue and working with the firm. And they're, they're not thought leadership uh-uh. focused per se, although thought leadership may inform your process and approach and, and things like that. But there's a totally different set of, of questions that are being asked. And if you want to help the firm achieve scale, you need to be answering those questions so partners and business developers aren't having to answer all those questions from scratch all the time. Mm -hmm. I, I guess all I'm saying is don't get stuck at the front end of the buyer's journey because you could be adding a lot more value in answering the questions that prospects have in making a decision to use or not use your firm. And if you go back to the the four stages of buying, that podcast that we did together and the model we use for that, the way we always frame it is that stage one is learning and that maps to thought leadership content. Stage two is vetting and that maps to marketing content. And the difference between thought leadership content and marketing content, of course, to, as you just said, is thought leadership content is educational, insightful. It's teaching me about the issues that I'm struggling with. Marketing content is more about the firm. It's This is our processes and methodologies. Here are proven cases case studies that show how we work. It's the actual messaging of the various practices or solution offerings in a way that's understandable. And so it's it's the stuff that gets the buyer over the hump to initiate a conversation. And like you said, lower the burden on the business development team to, to have that dialogue that can be started online. So to me, that whole notion, I know we've talked about this, the whole notion of you know 54% of the buyer's journey occurs online. 
that's the part you want to take control of is the learning and vetting stages. We're running a little bit long as usual, but there is a seventh capability. We've talked about it before, so we don't have to spend as much time on it, but the seventh capability is sales accelerators. And we talked about this in our podcast on sales enablement. And in the effort of of wrapping up today's episode, I guess the one piece of information I'll share on this, and then we can talk about it a little bit if we want to, is just this idea that the leaders, the exceptional thought leadership marketers recognize that their ability to educate and inform their sales team, however they frame that, on the thought leadership that they're producing is more critical to success than the content itself. It's a razor thin hair between those two for them, but it's a recognition that our ability to activate is more critical than us getting to some golden nugget that no one's ever found, although that's pretty important too. (laughs) So... I just thought that that was really interesting that the, the conventional wisdom, at least for a lot of thought leadership marketers, I think is that it's, it's all about the most compelling idea presented the best way possible. And our research says that it's activation of that idea that's more critical. So this is part of what I was getting to in, in my last comments. Again, this kind of goes back to the argument shapers capability as well is it's contextualizing the thought leadership and making it relevant in those one-on-one interactions. Hey, Mr. Prospect, here's our conclusions that we found. Here is what it means to you and to your function and to your firm and you know your competitive position. Make it relevant to them. Yeah. And that's always going to happen primarily in a sales context. So equipping the the salespeople with, and I just use this word, and it's always been my mantra, is create a smorgasbord of materials, stories that support that messaging that work for the way a certain business developer or partner wants to sell. Somebody is going to rely heavily on a on a white paper, or others are going to rely heavily on case studies. Some will just take the stories and just weave those in, but those are the important elements that need to be explained and put into context for the salespeople. And I think what works really well, at least I've seen this, is when you're getting the salespeople equipped of doing it as a group, not one-on-one, because once you kind of light the fuse, then the business developers start sharing their own stories and and collaborating and cross-pollinating and making it even those stories even stronger. So I really like the sales accelerators as well. And I think most marketers, as we've talked before, don't enable, they support. Yeah. The, the interesting piece of this all in general on the sales accelerator side is it just, it goes back to your notion of client experience that we've talked about and this idea that This is about marketing and business development alignment, and it is about making sure that the compelling thinking that I'm reading from the firm, when I start the conversation, whoever I start that conversation with can extend it and understands what's in the thinking and can talk about it and then talk about how the solutions fit with it. And frequently that that doesn't happen. The business developer is Mm -hmm. maybe not entirely informed of the thought leadership 
maybe they don't even know what's out there. You know, there's a whole subset of the research of firms that they don't even inform their salespeople that they've published anything. So if someone <laughs> calls them about it, they have no idea what it is, right? They're completely in shock. Uh, you're, what what yeah. did you read? Uh, I don't know what that's about, but let me help, let me tell you about this, you know, widget we have over here, right? And I've, I find there's kind of two types of business developers. Those that, you know, want to know the latest and the greatest that the firms released because they'll think about who they can take it to. And then there's those that don't care because they're chasing what they can kill today. And, oh, I'll find that if I need it. Yeah. You know, later on. Yeah. And I don't think either one of those is singularly the best. It needs to be a combination of the two. So I think that's a something that our listeners probably should make sure that they're doing. Yeah, and, and here's how you can tell if you're doing it or you're not doing it. Maybe this is unfair to marketers, but <laughs> if if you use the language we and they in talking about sales and marketing, you're probably not doing this. Probably have a problem. Or if you've uttered the word, it's not my job you're probably not doing it. So if that language is, is existing in your marketing group, you have room for improvement. Well, those are great wise words to wrap on. So we've stayed beyond our welcome. We should wrap it up today. So thanks for taking the time to go with me on the journey of these seven capabilities. I'm sorry it took two full episodes to do it, but I enjoyed it and I hope you did as well. And I hope our listeners got a lot of value out of it. In the show notes, we'll post a link out to the full research study. For those who want to, to go to it, data. go read it and share it. Actually put a training together in your firm to share these findings because they're that useful. Oh. Plus they have cute interactive graphics <laughs> like the the leaders use. Well, so get out there and use it. And those interactive graphics improve comprehension, we hope. <laughs> as well. That's as right. Well, beautiful. So, all right, man, an, right. another 20 minutes gone. Thanks for spending the time with me. My pleasure. Make sure you tell Bob Day, Good job. I will. Thanks, Jeff. See you, Jason. See you. Thank you for listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Find content related to this episode at rattleandpedal.com. Rattle and Pedal is also available on iTunes and Stitcher. Oh, oh, oh.